When we look at the world in which we live, what do we see? The animals, the plants, the people, the land, the sea, the sky. Do all of these exist independently? If not, then how do they relate to each other? Ecology is the science dealing with the interactions of living organisms and the natural processes of the planet. This science is huge and infinitely complex and has real, practical importance to our daily lives. What can ecology teach us about God and the creation we live in? God placed Eden in a perfect world. No death, disease, danger, or competition existed. When sin began, almost every aspect of life had to change. Most ecology we see today is God's backup plan. Without drastic intervention, life on Earth would likely have ceased to exist. So we should remember that the ecology we study today is not God's original plan, but rather his temporary way of dealing with the curse of sin. Let's look at some examples of ecology. Why do animals and plants live where they do? Individual species live in very different conditions. Some are widespread, some are isolated. Finding out the reasons why tells us a lot about the way life works. Why are natural habitats the way they are? Why do deserts have cactus while prairies have grass? Why do warm, sandy coastlines have palms and mangroves, while cold, rocky coastlines are dominated by seaweeds? Who eats what and why? How does the food chain work? For example, wolves reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park have changed the entire ecosystem for the better. Surprisingly, wolves have benefited species such as the quaking aspen, golden-eye ducks, and grizzly bears. Why do systems work this way? Plant communities never stay totally unchanged. New communities are constantly replacing the current species. Some ecosystems need to be frequently burned or to be healthy. Why? Animals and plants interact in amazingly complex ways. Many cooperate with totally different forms of life. We now know that 80% of plant species have symbiotic relationships with fungi. Without the fungi, plants struggle to absorb nutrients from the soil that only fungi can digest. This is why many crops fail and forests recover poorly from clear-cutting, since the crucial fungi are not taken into account by the farmers and the lumbermen. So these basic examples show us what ecology is all about. But how does this matter to us, and what does ecology show us about creation? When we study ecology, we find that human survival depends upon many other species. God has made plants and animals to serve special roles in his creation. Plants provide us with both food and oxygen. God has made in insects to pollinate plants as they gather nectar from flowers. Pollination is one of the most important processes in nature. Without pollinators, we would have virtually no food, as most plants require this interactive process. Forests are some of the richest habitats on Earth, providing us with food, medicine, clothing, and shelter. Forests host some of the greatest diversities of life. God created a wide variety of plants for us to eat. How we grow our crops has a huge impact on our health and daily lives. The perfect system of Eden is long gone, but
but God replaced it with a workable system of checks and balances to maintain life even in a sinful world. But even a casual examination of our world today finds a system breaking down. Nothing seems to be working well anymore as we reach the end of time. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Part of this is Satan's constant efforts to weaken and destroy the works of God. But much of the problem is our own disregard of God's principles of ecology. Pesticides have destroyed entire species of native pollinators, and even honeybee colonies are collapsing. Areas in China that have lost insect pollinators now require humans to hand-pollinate each individual flower. Do we really want to take on the arduous job of hand-pollinating our food? Insect pollen, insects pollinate plants for free and are happy to do it. What about God's forest ecosystems? As humans use more and more water, the trees needing more water die, replaced by plants suited to drier conditions. When grazing animals are allowed to graze at will, they tend to change the local plant life. This combination has resulted in many forested areas first changing to grasslands and eventually becoming arid deserts. Humans either must move away to try to survive in much more hostile conditions. The rich warehouses of life in the forests are gone, and human life changes from prosperity to survival. For restoring the ecosystem to the original conditions is usually difficult or impossible. So when we look at the world we live in, we find that we need to be mindful of God's creation. God gave us dominion over the plants and animals, and He expects us to fulfill our responsibilities. When we do, God blesses us and keeps the system running well. Ecology gives us a glimpse of God's design in all its many forms. Let's look now at how ecology magnifies the greatness of God and the hopelessness of evolution. When we look at a single cell, we find it stunningly complex. Take away any part of it, and the rest will cease to function. When we look at the complexity of a single species, we find it to be too complex and well-designed to be the result of random chance. When we look at the infinitely more complex interrelations of all life, we find the impossibilities infinitely multiplied. So when we examine life at any level of detail, it turns out to be irreducibly complex. How can evolution account for the web of interactions that had to develop to make life possible? Which part of the web of life came first? Most life cannot survive without the support structure of the rest of nature. But if originally there was virtually no life on Earth, how could anything have survived long enough to develop into the rich tapestry that we see now? Only if nature is set in place at the very beginning, with all the parts fully interlinked, can life continue to thrive and prosper. The study of ecology is the study of God's incredible planning and power. Ecology affects every single one of us. Unless we understand the, the patterns that God has organized, we will forever be damaging what we don't understand, and we will all suffer. The unmatched miracles of creation are a never-ending source of wonder and beauty that testify to the Creator who has given us this world to live in 
until he returns again. And now we're going to go back to the animals to shine a few more spotlights on the natural world. This time on marine life. Now we already did the fish, so what are we talking about now? If we ever needed complete proof that animals were not placed on earth to, for humans to exploit and enslave, we need look no farther than the teeming throngs of life found in the ocean. These include fish and mammals, birds and reptiles, all designed for life in salt water. But these are by far the minority of the underwater creation. In fact, the more we study sea life, the more we find that we have barely scratched the surface of what God has placed in his world. We are constantly discovering new forms of sea life. Many animals in the ocean have never been used by humans for anything, as we didn't even know that they existed. There is no way to cover all the marine invertebrates out there, so we will just focus on a few of the major groups to showcase the diversity of life God decided to craft. The mollusks are one of the major groups, with many different variations. Many have a single spiral shell with some of the most exquisite designs found in nature, as seen on many sandy beaches when old shells wash ashore. All have the basic snail design, a single large foot for crawling locomotion that can be retracted into their own personal motorhome. Other mollusks have two shells held together by a strong hinge, such as the clams and the mussels. These are filter feeders that de de decontaminate large volumes of seawater as they filter out both food and pollutants. Most of these are sedentary, anchored tightly to rocks or buried in the mud. But scallops are able to clap their way through the water to escape predators. Some reefs are studded with giant clams in electric colors and intricate patterns, sometimes reaching six feet across. Chambered nautilus have up to 100 tentacles and precisely control their buoyancy in the water gently rising and falling deep underwater. Some mollusks have no shell at all, like the nudibranchs in their neon rainbow of colors. The most fanciful of all are the octopus, squid, and cuttlefish. These are incredible animals with super skills and intelligence. They can change color in a flash and communicate using words of light and pattern on their skin. Crustaceans are another large group that come in many forms. They tend to have bodies of many segments, protected by multi-piece armor. Many have lots of legs and big claws for catching and cutting food. The shrimps, lobsters, and crabs are all part of this group, and they can be formidable tanks prowling the ocean floor or delicate swimmers of the open sea. As they grow larger, they have to break out of their inflexible armor, and a new coat of mail hardens into the right size. Huge whales eat tons of krill, an abundant form of shrimp usually found in icy water. Hermit crabs live in abandoned snail shells. As they grow larger, they have to find a new shell that fits. Barnacles glue their head to a solid surface and collect food with their foot protected by a complicated shell. Isopods and beach fleas are common on sandy beaches, feeding on shore flotsam. 
Many marine animals are microscopic. Sponges are single-celled animals that cooperate to form a colony. They each specialize in a different job, working together in amazing unity. Break them down to their single cells, and they will soon reassemble back to their original colony form. Bryozoans also form colonies, resembling leafy plants or graceful geometrical designs. It's hard to visualize any of these as animals, since they look so much like seaweed. Another group that resembles plants are the cnidarians. All in this group are active predators, catching their food with grasping tentacles armed with stinging cells. On the large end are the anemones, familiar residents of coastal tide pools. Underwater, they spread their colorful tentacles to feed, but, most, but they must contract into water-retaining balls at low tide. On the tiny end are the corals, one of the greatest builders in nature. Each individual animal secretes minerals that add to the whole reef, creating structures that can be seen from space. Without coral, a huge segment of ocean life would be impossible, as the reefs provide food and shelter for the greatest diversity of life found in the oceans. Coral reefs are the water equivalent of tropical rainforests on land, biodiversity hotspots swarming with amazing forms of life. Soft corals are a closely related group that creates no reef, since their soft bodies never secrete a mineral armor coating. They can be colorful fans adorning the reef, or long whips hanging off undersea cliffs. Finally, the cnidarians include the very strange jellies. These transparent blobs lazily drift through the water, pumping their bell-shaped bodies to steer themselves. They have no brain or nervous system, but still can gather into groups of millions as they wander the currents. Some reach surprising sizes. The colonial Portuguese man-of-war grows 60-foot-long tentacles, which is impressive until compared with the 200-foot tentacles of a giant jelly that can weigh 2,000 pounds. Comb jellies are bioluminescent jewels with rows of shimmering cilia that propel these transparent bells through the water, sometimes in vast schools. The varied groups of worms are a major part of marine life. These come in many varieties, segmented, acorn, flat, ribbon, peanut, and roundworms, to name a few. Some are parasitic, living on or in other animals, but many live free as predators or scavengers. Crawling through the reefs and tide pools, they find their food. Adult sizes vary from one-tenth of an inch at full size to others that can reach 10 feet long. Tube worms filter feed plankton when they emerge from their hard home tube. Flatworms cut into pieces regenerate into a new worm from each piece within a week. Echinoderms are very strange animals. This group includes the sea stars, brittle stars, cucumbers, sand dollars, and urchins. Despite their varied forms, they all share a structure of internal chambers filled by water. This gives them pressure to control and move a system of hundreds of tube feet 
They can move on these feet like living conveyor belts or pry open shells with amazing strength to access a meal. Sea stars eat by pouring out their stomach onto prey and digesting it externally. Urchins and sand dollars live in a shell of armor, while cucumbers are usually soft, while sea stars can be armored or soft. Some can regenerate from serious injury, like the stars that can regrow lost arms. So what can we learn from this amazing panoply of life? First of all, God places animals in places we don't expect, in every possible nook and cranny. Finding a spot in the ocean without a tiny resident is very difficult. Second, the range of designs that God came up with is truly astonishing. If we didn't see a certain animal, we would never believe them to be possible. Some of the invertebrates are so unbelievable that we marvel at every new design discovered. And the new discoveries will never end. Most of the world's oceans remain unknown to us. Modern divers can usually explore from the surface down to about 150 feet down. But the depth of most of the sea is far greater, from two to seven miles. An amazing 95% of the water-covered parts of the planet are as truly unexplored as Mars or Venus. Every time we send cameras down to these unknown areas, we discover new and unusual animals living in places we never knew life existed. It is still a mystery to us what God's purposes for these animals are. What we do know is that God loves diversity, and all his creations fulfill critical roles in his vast and interlocking design. And like I said, we're going to be doing one of the strangest groups of animals in nature, and now we've arrived at that one, the arachnids. God made animal life in a surprising number of forms. When we examine nature, we are often surprised and amazed by the oddities that we find. But some of God's greatest miracles are often contained in the strangest of packages. And by learning about them, we will inevitably learn about the source of their life and how special he is. Some of the most unusual animals are found in the group called arachnids. This group contains several types that don't look much like each other. In fact, it seems a mystery how these animals can be related at all, as superficially they seem utterly different in both sizes and shapes. Biologists classify them together based on a few common structural features, like the number of legs. But the technical aspects are not as important to us here. We will focus instead on the incredible designs that God has chosen to invent and place in his world. A few are found in the oceans, most notably large horseshoe crabs. Breathing with gills, they crawl on the seafloor most of their lives until they pile onto beaches to mate and lay their eggs. Mites are small to near microscopic, found both on land and in fresh water. But most arachnids are land creatures. Solifugues race after insect prey at up to 10 miles per hour in deserts around the world. The hairs that cover them detect odors, vibrations, and chemicals. Pseudoscorpions are micro-predators that can live in many strange places, even under the wings of beetles. Some even hitchhike on moths by hanging onto a leg until they reach a destination. 
Vinegaroons subdue food by spraying vinegar-scented acid from their tail. They use their heavy front pinchers to hold prey and their delicate second pair of legs as feelers. Harvestmen tiptoe around trees and on the ground, sometimes gathering into dense clusters. They also use their longest legs as feelers, touching everything around them delicately. Note that these are not spiders, as harvestmen have a single oval body, while spiders have a body divided into two distinct parts. In humid tropics, tailless whip scorpions grab prey with their long bent front legs that they can hold, fold out of their way. They are so flat that they can live safely under loose tree bark. Scorpions use their venomous stingers to subdue insect prey while they hold onto it with their strong front pinchers. Unique equipment under their body detects chemical signals as they walk. Eyes on top of a flat head let them see in all directions at once. Baby scorpions ride on their mother's back until they are old enough to survive on their own. Of all of these weird arachnids, only some of the scorpions and mites pose any danger to man. The rest are all totally harmless, despite their fearsome appearances. Humans have invented artificial ideas of beauty and ugliness and condemn those animals which don't fit our preconceptions. But God must not see them this way, as he made these beneficial species in forms that defy our modern prejudices. The main arachnids that we are familiar with are the spiders. These are found everywhere in amazing numbers. A typical meadow can host a million spiders. No matter what you are doing all day, there is probably a spider within arm's length of you wherever you go. But don't panic, as they are some of our best allies in reducing insect numbers. Spiders are actually insect-catching specialists. They use devices called spinnerets to produce lines of strength and elasticity that human technology cannot match. Silk is produced as a liquid inside their body that hardens when exposed to air. The spider controls how the silk forms with her spinnerets, and many species can choose between up to seven different types of silk. They use silk to build shelters, protect their young, and create safety lines, but the prime use is to make webs to catch prey. Every spider will make a web that is typical of her species. Some have huge jaws to bite and hang onto their prey, especially those who build flat webs above the water. The largest spiders that make webs are the golden silk orb weavers. These massive spiders spin thick yellow silk into huge, durable webs. Enormous spiders hanging from four-foot-wide golden webs can disconcert even the hardiest adventurer but these titans are peaceful and serene. Most orb weavers are far smaller and some are living jewels, coming in a rainbow of colors and patterns. Orb weavers have soft bodies like typical spiders, but spiny orb weavers are unusual because they have hard bodies. Spines sticking out give them extra defense against anyone trying to eat them. Other spiders forego webs entirely and instead actively chase prey. 
Night-crawling spiders emerge after dark to hunt. Jumping spiders have extremely diverse colors and forms. They leap upon prey like leopards, using the best vision God gave to any spiders. Several different groups of spiders look like ants and act like ants. They fool both their prey and their predators, since few animals like to tackle biting or stinging ants for lunch. Maybe the most famous of the roving spiders are the tarantulas, found in many habitats around the world. They are covered with thick hair and have large front fangs. This fearsome appearance have given them the reputation of killers, but they are actually some of the shyest and gentlest of creatures. Their bite is usually no worse than a bee sting, and most will avoid biting until there is no other choice. Their preferred defense is to flick hairs from their abdomen into an attacker's eyes. Some have flamboyant hair colors that make them stand out. Others dress more somberly in browns and blacks. Come mating season, the male will seek out a female's burrow to convince her that he is her prince, prince charming. If she is convinced, they will mate in a complicated dance of wariness and tenderness. Once they are finished, they move apart to resume their solitary lives. Some spiders neither spin a web nor wander in search of food. Trapdoor spiders wait in a burrow for passing meals to come within range. Crab spiders hunt on a flower and ambush flying insects that arrive to drink the nectar. Some can even change color to match their background. And in this picture, the spider is the white one catching the fly. Of 38,000 spider species, less than 100 have a strong enough venom and bite to be dangerous to human beings. And only two of these are native to North America, the brown recluse and the black widow. God has tasked spiders in keeping insects controlled. Without spiders, we would be overrun by insects. Every time we crush a spider, we are allowing hundreds of insects to live and reproduce. The mosquito carrying the disease that will kill you can be caught and eaten by a spider first, but only if you don't kill the spider. The final point spiders teach us involves instinct. Now the term instinct is used by evolutionists to describe why animals do what they do. But they give no credible illumination as to how animals initiate and pass on instinct. Spiders make so many different web designs that it is impossible for evolution to explain how so many variations developed and were passed on to following generations. They never change their own design to a different species design, and they never invent a totally new design. They never teach their young anything. Yet they all know what to do and keep doing it efficiently. How could the hardwired instinct of spiders have been established by chance? So the many creative webs in the spider world show how each species knows their own God-given design. This is true of all animals. Chaos and fortune could never have resulted in animals developing the exact instinct they need to survive. 
Instinct only makes sense if it is a gift of God that varies based on the needs of each species. Only our Creator is powerful and wise enough to have given instinct to His creations, just as they require. So as we have seen, the strange and fascinating world of the arachnids give us a glimpse of God's creativity in a truly spectacular and unforgettable way. Sometimes the most important lesson of creation are found in the most unlikely of places. And now, as promised, we are going to look at the most important group of animals in the world. Is that what you expected? If you were asked which group of animals is the most abundant, diverse, and influential, which would you guess? The mammals, maybe, or perhaps the birds. When we look at the land animals and how important each group is, we find the clear winners to be the insects. Insects dominate every category we come up with. As we learn more about the interactions of nature that God established, we find that insects actually make survival possible for the rest of life, including us. So let's look at the incredible insects that God made. All insects have six legs, a body divided into three parts, and a hard shell protecting soft insides. In fact, insects wear their skeleton on the outside with no strong internal structures. This gives insects excellent protection from damage from other small life forms. All insects are small, with the largest only a few inches long. Beyond a few traits in common, however, insects display almost unlimited diversity. First in any list are the beetles. With 350,000 named species, beetles are the most diverse animal family. An astonishing 30% of all animals on Earth are beetles. Beetles inhabit every possible niche and often dominate tropical ecosystems. They vary from huge, awkward, lumbering tanks to tiny specks almost too small to see. The smallest insect in America is a beetle that can go through the eye of a needle. People often call all insects bugs, but only one insect family truly fits that name. True bugs include many designs, but all share a diet of liquids. A sharp tube lets them pierce their food and drink like a straw. Some drink plant juices, while others suck body fluids of insects. Some scuttle across the water's surface. Others dive underneath, carrying their own personal air bubble to breathe. Most fly about searching for their plant or insect food, and some even use chemicals to warn off predators, like this shield bug. Flies are a very familiar category of insects that we encounter often. They are the great aerial acrobats. They have two knobs next to their wings that give flies perfect balance as they dash about madly from one pressing crisis to another. A tiny gnat can beat its wings up to 500 times a second. A fruit fly can fly without rest for over six hours. Probably the most charismatic group are the butterflies and moths. 
These vary from tiny micromoths that are smaller than a grain of rice and barely visible, to giant tropical butterflies. All start out as caterpillars that munch their way through plants until they are old enough to transform. A human has around 800 muscles in our bodies, but a caterpillar has over 4,000. Leaf miners are so small that they spend their entire caterpillar stage feeding between the upper and lower layers of tree leaves. Come transformation time, they enclose themselves in a case, rearranging every cell in their body by turning into liquid goo and reform into a winged adult. Then they emerge and flit gracefully between flowers, displaying a myriad of colors and patterns. Monarchs fly an amazing 2,500 miles in the fall from Canada to their wintering ground in Mexico. A hawk moth can fly at 25 miles per hour. Female moths can attract a male from seven miles away using chemical pheromones. Not only are moths and butterflies beautiful insect ambassadors, but they are witnesses of God's power of creation. Only he could mastermind their metamorphosis from caterpillar to adult. Ants and termites are perhaps the most abundant in terms of individuals. There is a half ton of termites for every human being on earth. Think about that. Ants occur in countless varieties in every warm habitat. Ants can be scavengers, predators, gardeners, harvesters, herders, carpenters, and even slavers. A worker can lift a stone 50 times her own weight. Ants and termites are two of the few animals that can form superorganisms, with each individual working for the good of the whole colony. Colonies can be a few living inside a rolled leaf or billions spread over vast areas like the Argentine ants. A single colony of Argentine ants has taken over most of Southern California, eliminating most other ant colonies in their way. The other superorganisms are found in the bees and wasps. Some species are solitary or form small family groups, but most are part of very large groups. Bees make homes out of wax, while wasps use paper crafted it from wood pulp. Virtually all of these societies are female, from the workers who feed, defend, and build the colony to the queens who give birth to the teeming masses. Whether scavenging wasps or nectar-gathering bees, all are hugely important in maintaining natural ecosystems. Many insects have very strange and complex life cycles. Cicadas live as larvae for up to 17 years underground. Then they emerge together to reproduce in a deafening chorus. Mayfly larvae swim in streams until they transform and live a single day as an adult. Mantis are a diverse group of active predators that catch food with their quick strike front arms. Some mimic leaves while others match tropical flowers. Crickets and grasshoppers leap energetically as they court, escape danger, or travel in search of food. Colorful patterns paint many, while others use camouflage to hide. Males of each kind sing their own unique song to impress females. 
Ears on front legs make them some of the few insects that can hear any sounds. Some crickets dwell in caves and use extremely long antenna to feed, feel their way through the darkness. Dragonflies and damselflies are insect fighter jets. They dash about catching small insects, using their four glassy wings to give them precision control and high speeds. Huge eyes covering their head give them excellent vision to track prey. A fast dragonfly can reach 25 miles per hour. Some migrate as far as birds, moving between continents every season. So that is a brief look at the major insect families. This doesn't even cover the many smaller groups like the elegant and harmless scorpion flies. The stream-dwelling caddisflies that build their own personal mobile shelter underwater. The aphids that clone themselves in bizarre reproductive cycles. And the leafhoppers that hurl themselves away from danger using their legs like a spring. Many insects like to hide in plain sight. Stick insects mimic twigs and usually move in slow motion. Leaf insects match the leaves of trees, even down to fake veins and fungus spots. Ambush bugs match the flowers that they hide on as they wait for insects to approach their lethal bite. Moths can blend perfectly against tree bark as they wait for darkness when they will fly again. And here is the most incredible aspect of the insects that dominate our world. Without the teeming masses of insects going about their business, life on Earth would be impossible. A small percentage are harmful to us or our food, but by far the majority are vital to us or the ecosystems that we depend on. Bees and wasps pollinate the plants we depend on for food and oxygen. Flies and beetles are major pollinators as well. We know of 1,100 plant species pollinated mainly by flies. Beetles and flies recycle dead plants, animals, and their waste to prevent diseases from spreading and give nutrients to the next generation of life. All insects are the indispensable base of the food web. Without insects, most birds would starve along with all the other animals that rely on insects for food. Right now, for every human on Earth, there are about a million insects. On land, insects make up 85 to 93% of the total weight of all animal life. If all insects died, so would we. The long-term designs of God are truly amazing. He created insects as the backbone of his plans, setting in motion the little things that run the world, mostly out of our sight and beyond our comprehension. When you look at the insects that fill every nook and cranny of our existence, remember that most of them are God's way of maintaining the system that he created. And now as we begin to close out the meeting, we're now going to come to the animals that are no longer with us, the extinct animals, prehistoric life. When we look around at the animals alive today, what animals are missing? 
What has the earth lost over the last 6,000 years of tumultuous natural history? Dinosaurs are famous, but many other more obscure animals have also gone extinct. What were these lost species? How did they die? And what lessons can creationists learn from their extinction? Some of the most famous were mammals. Giant mastodons and woolly mammoths were two of many kinds of strange elephants. Saber-toothed cats had the longest teeth of any feline in history. Huge-headed dire wolves hunted American camels. Many were larger versions of animals still alive today, like half-ton pigs, American lions, or the steppe bison. Antelopes sporting elaborate horns grazed peacefully with variations of gazelles. Giant short-faced hyenas were the size of a small lion and so may have hunted for themselves or scavenged. Europe had the largest deer ever, the Irish elk. The males lugged around antlers 12 feet across and so probably stayed out of dense forests. Woolly rhinos were able to live in cold climates thanks to their thick fur. Marsupial saber-toothed cats stalked South America, while Australia had wombat grazers as big as hippos and kangaroo relatives seven feet tall. These were hunted by marsupial wolves and lions. Some animals were unlike anything we know now. Brontotheer faces sported bizarre horns, where litopherns dangled short trunks. Enormous ground sloths stood 15 feet tall and fed on tree leaves. They weren't very fast, and they weren't very bright, but their huge size intimidated most predators. Walking tanks called glyptodonts shuffled through the underbrush. Their bony armor was impenetrable to almost any attack, Plus, some had tail spikes or a club to see off predators. Entelodonts roamed about feeding on anything they could chew up with their razor-sharp tusks. Few other animals, even other predators, would have been willing to confront these aggressive brawlers. How many of us realize that the largest and heaviest land mammals of all time were the Indricothors? These hornless rhinos reached 25 feet tall and weighed 15 tons. There were many extinct birds as well, including huge flightless ones. South America hosted the terror birds. These fearsome birds ran down their prey and killed them with massive beaks. The largest bird to ever walk on earth was the elephant bird of Madagascar, weighing nearly 900 pounds. A single egg was 160 times bigger than a chicken's egg. Madagascar's bird up on the left, chicken egg lower left, emu lower right, ostrich upper right. Other groups of animals also had unusual extinct representatives. Snakes 40 to 50 feet long dwarf the few large snake species alive today. Sea turtles had shells reaching 15 feet across. Swampy areas held carnivorous salamanders 10 feet long with huge triangular heads. Flying through the forests and wetlands were giant dragonflies with three-foot wingspans. They may have been the largest known insects of all time, 
but they were dwarfed by the largest known arachnids. These relatives of spiders and scorpions were called sea scorpions and reached seven feet long. They had no venom, but were still impressive predators, catching meals with fierce front claws. A whole class of fish had iron-hard armor and huge shearing jaws. They were among many other types of fish that we only know from their fossils. In fact, many such sea creatures are lost to time. Trilobites had an immense variety of sizes and shapes. Their eyes were made of calcite and were some of the most sophisticated eyes ever designed. Ammonites lived in elaborate shells like long, straight cones or fancy corkscrews. Colonies of crinoids, looking like living flowers, once carpeted large areas of the seafloor. An amazing diversity of life can now only be found in stone. So what happened to all these amazing creatures? First of all were those lost in the flood. Sometimes we imagine the flood as just a lot of rain. But so much chaos and destruction occurred that it is a wonder that any sea life survived. Whole orders of aquatic life died out, leaving the new oceans to those animals that scraped through. After the flood, the newly remade land areas went through massive changes for hundreds of years. Volcanoes began erupting for the first time. The climate became unstable as ice took over much of the northern hemisphere, pushing back and forth across the land several times in just a few centuries. Land animals became, began to spread into these areas from their release point at Noah's Ark. Soon these colonists reproduced and filled the land with life. We know that they were alive after the flood from several sources. Animals like mammoths have been removed from ice and permafrost where they froze to death. Underground beavers living in deep corkscrew burrows were suffocated by ash from volcanoes. Most dramatic of all were those sad victims of tar pits. These quiet pools covered thick tar that seized anyone stepping in them. Not only were thirsty grazers trapped in this way, but scavengers like short-faced bears coming to eat the trapped animals were caught themselves. None of these features existed before the flood, so any animals caught in these ways are proven to be post-flood. This shows that God saved these animals in the ark and wanted them to continue to survive. But tar pits and volcanoes and ice could only kill a relatively few individuals. How did all these well-designed species go extinct? Evolutionists have been hard-pressed to answer this question since these animals supposedly existed long before humans arrived in their habitat. But those with faith in the biblical time frame know better. Humans spread to remote areas soon after animals established themselves. When humans crossed into Australia and North America, they found a wealth of large mammals filling every available niche, and the human's response was to obliterate them. In less than a thousand years, humans wiped out almost every large bird and mammal that they met. Some areas seemed especially susceptible to this form of blitzkrieg, such as North and South America. Huge gaps exist to this day in the ecological niches of the New World, never replaced after the early slaughters. 
Some animals on remote islands lasted until very recently, since it took humans much longer to reach these outposts. Moas of New Zealand and Madagascar's elephant birds almost lasted until Europeans explored their islands. But native people completely wiped them out first. What can be learned from this history of extinction? First, we are a poorer world for having lost so many diverse forms of life. The strength of an ecosystem is expressed by its biodiversity, and most ecosystems are weaker now than they used to be. Second, God's initial creation was even more amazing than we can visualize. There are so many forms of life that God made, it shows the splendor of his designs. Finally, extinction isn't natural, despite what evolutionists say. Evolution claims that over the course of history, most life forms have gone extinct. People use this as an excuse to not protect wildlife because extinction is natural. But the truth is that diversity is part of God's world and whatever reduces it is not normal. Today we have the smallest variety of animal forms at any time in history. Almost no extinctions occur in regular conditions, even during natural disasters. Due to the unredeemable wickedness of pre-flood humanity, God chose to thoroughly cleanse the world. The overwhelming flood destroyed many species, both on land and sea. Man destroyed the rest later. Throughout history, humans have been the main force wiping out other life. The modern extinction crisis caused by overpopulation and greed is nothing new. It is just a continuation of our casual destruction of anything we feel like killing. Some of the strangest and most exciting animals ever to grace our planet are no longer available for us to observe and interact with. Hopefully in the new earth to come, they will resume their place in God's perfect and once again complete creation. I look forward to seeing these magnificent creatures in the flesh rather than as bones. Then the true nature of these lost species will finally be revealed for all to see and be marveled at. Now you will have noticed I didn't show any dinosaurs. I promised dinosaurs and I didn't give you any dinosaurs. So now we're going to finish up with dinosaurs. Focus on dinosaurs all by themselves. Dinosaurs always attract attention for their huge size and their strange forms. Both kids and adults are drawn to these scary beasts from long ago. But dinosaurs present unique questions to a creationist. Some Christians even feel confused or threatened by these animals, viewing them as symbols of evolution. But what is the true story of these creatures? And how do they fit into God's plan? Where did they come from and where did they go? And will we see them again? The first question that needs to be addressed is, are they real? Some people think they are a hoax invented by evolutionists. The truth is that they were very real. We know this from many traces left behind in the rocks, bones, skin impressions, footprints, eggs, and even dino scat are found constantly all around the world. We, the first dino fossil described was actually found by a creationist long before evolution was being promoted. Today, many creation scientists are involved in digging up dinosaur remains to learn about extinct life. Since they were real, what were they? Well, they were animals, specifically reptiles, with many different kinds living in many habitats. 
Most of us are familiar with the meat-eating carnivores with their huge teeth and slashing claws. But these are the minority, as most were vegetarian. Some were enormous, the largest land animals to ever walk the earth, grazing on plants like giant cows. But many were tiny, fast-moving bipeds that stood under three feet high. Some dinos were armored tanks with huge tail clubs and were almost invulnerable to attack. Others were massive browsers with spikes and thick neck frills of various shapes and sizes. There were many types of extinct reptiles that aren't officially called dinosaurs. Some could fly on huge leathery wings and snapped up fish with huge jaws. Others lived in the sea and were some of the most dangerous predators of all time, able to tackle even the largest prey. There were even gigantic relatives of crocodiles, 40 to 50 feet long. Even though these are not considered dinosaurs, I'm including them as part of this section. Based on many clues, we have good evidence for what dinosaurs ate, what noises they made, how they walked, and even what their skin texture was like. We know that some were devoted parents, using their young, raising their young in family groups. But we don't know if they were cold or warm-blooded, and scientists argue about this and other undiscovered aspects of their behavior. One thing that no one has a clue about is what color they were. Any color is possible, so bright paintings and sculptures might well be correct. But it is safe to say that some dino colors are less likely than others. But where did dinosaurs come from? Since we know they didn't evolve millions of years ago, what is the truth? Satan is not capable of creating life, as we have been told from inspiration. The prince of evil, though possessing all the wisdom and might of an angel fallen, has not power to create or to give life. This is the prerogative of God alone. The only options available are that either men bred them somehow or that they were created by God. How man could engineer them is an almost insurmountable problem. What lizard could be bred with what elephant to create a Diplodocus 90 feet long? How does a test tube experiment manage to produce a Stegosaurus with huge plates on its back? No modern science can even begin to solve the problems involved in breeding immense animals out of nothing. By assuming ancient people could do so, we imbue them with almost godlike powers. Dinosaurs are also extremely sophisticated. The jaw structure of a hadrosaur flexed sideways to allow for very efficient grinding of tough vegetation. Gallimimus ran at high speeds on long legs as they escaped from danger or pursued their prey. Protoceratops had a parrot-like beak to slice off thick branches. Brachiosaurus could stand up on their hind legs and use their tails to brace themselves to eat the tops of towering trees. Plesiosaurs dove deep underwater and withstood great depth pressure. Myasauri carefully raised babies in giant nests and defended their young for years. 
Demetriodon had a huge heat regulation frill that could disperse or collect heat. Every kind had something special that made them different from the others. Some people have interpreted an early statement of Ellen White as saying that dinosaurs were destroyed in the flood because they were evil creations of men. However, she never actually mentions dinosaurs. Rather, she uses the term confused species to describe the results of human tampering with nature. But dinosaurs were anything but confused. They were as complex and well-designed as any other facet of creation. We don't know what monstrosities were bred or engineered by the corrupt minds of antediluvian men, but the closest equivalent today are the sad mutants that scientific labs are churning out constantly through the insanity of genetic engineering. So it turns out that we don't really have any inspiration telling us that dinosaurs were man-made. So the only remaining option is that God created them. Many people find dinosaurs frightening due to their huge size and carnivorous diet. But most were actually vegetarians, and many were smaller than modern elephants. Since God made all animals in Eden to be vegetarians, dinosaurs would have started that way as well. At the time of the fall, animals had to change to survive in a sinful world. Many animals became meat or insect eaters. Some dinosaurs joined them and began preying on other animals. So in the end, we find that God is the most likely creator of dinosaurs, since they are as well-made and as sophisticated as all other animals. But if that is true, then why did they all die? Most or all went extinct during the worldwide flood that destroyed the antediluvian world. Why weren't they saved on the ark with the other animals? Three reasons stand out. First, due to their large size, the ark could never have held more than a few without eliminating room for many other animals. Second, God knew that humans would soon be shrinking in size and ability once they began to eat animal flesh themselves. And he permitted that long-lived race to eat animal food to shorten their sinful lives. Soon after the flood, the race began to rapidly decrease in size and in length of years. Adam and Eve were about twice as tall as humans are now. A dinosaur, which in Eden would have compared well to them, would dwarf six-foot-tall people today. We just wouldn't be able to deal with such massive creatures anymore. Finally, the world that could support dinosaurs came to an end with the flood. Sometimes we don't realize how different conditions on Earth were, then, were back then. It never rained. Mist and dew provided precipitation for plants and animals. The oceans were not as deep or rough, and the mountains were not as rugged. Even the oxygen content of the air was richer. Today, oxygen in the atmosphere is only 21%. Before the flood, it was 35%. We know this from bubbles of pre-flood air trapped in fossil tree sap called amber. This is crucial because it solves several mysteries. How could a giant Argentinosaurus that weighed 100 tons support itself or even walk? But with the increased oxygen, it becomes possible for them to function without difficulty. 
Another example is the pterosaur, Quetzalcoatlus, the largest flying animal ever. With a wingspan of 30 to 40 feet across, scientists wondered how such a heavy animal could ever get off the ground. But again, the higher oxygen comes to the rescue, giving them the extra muscular energy to launch and stay airborne. The pre-flood world was perfectly suited for giant animals. So dinosaurs and other giant reptiles would have been unable to survive all the disruptions resulting from the flood. God in his providence knew the time of the dinosaurs had come to an end. We need not fear dinosaurs as tools of evolutionists, but rather we should celebrate them as another example of the diversity and creativity of God's amazing panoply of life. And that leaves us with only one question. Will there be dinosaurs in the new earth when all is remade perfectly again? I sincerely hope so. It would be a thrill to watch a vegetarian Tyrannosaurus Rex run around with a Triceratops, fulfilling the roles that God made them for in the first place, whatever that may be. Now that's the program I normally do, but we're going to do something a little special here for this Adventist group, because this is something that always comes up. We are going to look, as we close the meeting, at Ellen White's statement that has been interpreted to mean that dinosaurs were destroyed by the flood, because this is one of the most quoted and at the same time misunderstood statements that you could find in her writings. So we're going to just read it. This is in her original book that she wrote long before Patriarchs and Prophets started, and this was the original version of that that she first wrote. And this is talking about the pre-flood inhabitants that existed at that time and what they were doing wrong. Instead of doing justice to their neighbors, they carried out their own unlawful wishes. They had a plurality of wives, which was contrary to God's wise arrangement. In the beginning, God gave to Adam one wife, showing to all who should live upon the earth his order and law in that respect. The transgression and fall of Adam and Eve brought sin and wretchedness upon the human race, and man followed his own carnal desires and changed God's order. The more men multiplied wives to themselves, the more they increased in wicked wickedness and unhappiness. If any one chose to take the wives or cattle or anything belonging to his neighbor, he did not regard justice or right. But if he could prevail over his neighbor by reason and strength, or by putting him to death, he did so, and exulted in his deeds of violence. They loved to destroy the lives of animals. They used them for food, and this increased their ferocity and violence, and caused them to look upon the blood of human beings with astonishing indifference. But if there was one sin above another which called for the destruction of the race by the flood, it was the base crime of amalgamation, of man and beasts which defaced the image of God and caused confusion everywhere. God purposed to destroy by a flood that powerful, long-lived race that had corrupted their ways before him. Now I'm going to go back to that last paragraph to take a look at that because that is the key beginning of our understanding of this passage. 
The word amalgamation is a neutral word. It's not actually a negative thing. It simply describes a mixing of two different things. If you mix two different metals, if you mix two different animals, whatever, you're just doing something that is a technical term of mixing. It can be both positive or negative. And, but in this case, it is obviously negative. If there was one sin above another, it was that of amalgamation of man and beast, which defaced the image of God. Now here becomes our question of this statement as you look at it very carefully. What is going on here? If you breed a dog with another type of dog and you get a third type of dog, is that defacing the image of God? That's just making another type of dog. If you breed a horse and a donkey together, you get a mule. That's amalgamation. And that's nothing bad. It's just a mixing of two different things. So what is going on here that defaces the image of God? The only explanation that makes sense with this passage is the mixing of man and beast. And the pre-flood humans apparently had some way of breeding humans and animals. I would assume that to be some form of ape that was being bred with the humans. And therefore, that is what would create a new life that defaced the image of God. Because no longer was man in the image of God, it was now partially a human partial human part ape. And here's an interesting speculation. We find fossils of caveman, proto-man, Lucy, all these weird deformed people prototypes that evolution shows to us. Could they be fossils of these amalgamations of man and ape? It's a possibility. I have no proof of that, but that is certainly an option. But let's continue with this because we're going to look at another statement in the same book, the next chapter, again referring to this amalgamation uh, issue. And as we looked here, remember the words, amalgamation, confused species, because that is what she's talking about here. The, the, uh, the amalgamation of man and beast caused confusion everywhere. So now we'll read the next statement. Every species of animals which God had created was preserved in the ark. The confused species which God did not create, which were the results of amalgamation, were destroyed by the flood. So now we're again referring to exactly what we just looked at. The confused species, those merging of, plant, of humans and animals that caused confusion everywhere, is what she is specifically talking about in this case. And now we continue on with her statement. Since the, flood, since the flood, there has been amalgamation of man and beast, as may be seen in the almost endless varieties of species of animals and in certain races of man. Now it becomes a neutral term because now there's two different things. It's not a merging of man and beast in this section. It is now the amalgamation of animals and the amalgamation of men because there's all different races of men. There's pygmies, there's giants, there's people in between, there's all different varieties. And none of them are the result of mixing with animals. They are just different varieties of human beings that have developed in various habitats. And we have all sorts of varieties of cats and dogs and domestic animals. There's just endless varieties that have been developed through breeding programs. And so in this case, it's not a negative thing, it's more of a neutral thing. It's describing the way that animals and people have changed since the time of the flood. But let's go back a paragraph because we want to look one more time at that passage on how every species of animals which God had created was preserved in the ark. 
Now we look at that and we say, well, that does it for dinosaurs because they weren't on the ark and therefore they couldn't have been one of the uh, creations of God. But here's the real question. Sentence structure is crucial. Ellen White, when she wrote this, this was what some of her earliest writings, and she oftentimes had trouble when she was trying to express what she was thinking in the perfect grammar. She got better as time went on, but in these early books, it was often difficult to ascertain her sentence order. And so here is an interesting way of rearranging that sentence, and it becomes something totally different. Every species of animals preserved in the ark, God had created. Now that totally changes it. Because when you think about it, did God create starfish? Were they on the ark? Did God create whales and dolphins and seals and fish? Were they on the ark? So this statement cannot mean what it seems to on its surface. Every species of animal which God had created was preserved in the ark. Well, there was tons of animals outside the ark which God had created. So she can't be meaning it in that way. But if you rearrange the sentence structure, it totally makes sense. Every species preserved in the ark God had created. And the confused species that man had messed around with that defaced the image of God were not included on the ark. It totally becomes an interesting way to view this passage, and it becomes a point of interpretation. Now, I'm not saying this is right, but I'm saying this is definitely an option that we need to think about, because this has always been used as a categorical denial of anything that wasn't on the ark wasn't created by God. And it's a very interesting thing that when she wrote the next version of this passage in Patriarchs and Prophets, she eliminated all of this because it was just a little bit too confusing. That doesn't mean it was wrong. She was inspired when she wrote this, just as she was later. And you know me and my family, we are never going to do anything that will downplay the inspiration and authority of the spirit of prophecy. But at the same time, she saw that there was a problem here in communication, and she decided to eliminate it and just ignore that issue from that point forward. So we cannot be too dogmatic sometimes about things which are difficult for us to understand her mind exactly what she was trying to say. So that is our look at the creation world. We've shown a spotlight on a huge variety of animals, and in fact, I have made a point of covering every category of life on Earth in terms of the broad picture. Everything that you've looked at today covers some animal somewhere, and there's really nothing else left except for a few bits of protozoas and things like that. So I hope this has been a helpful and worldwide uh, uh, tour of the natural world that gives, gives us a bit of a new picture of God than we perhaps have ever thought about before. God is bigger than we can ever imagine, and the more we study, the bigger he gets. It's an incredible world that he has given us, and even broken, it's still an amazing testimony toward his design. Now, after we close up the meeting here, we're going to allow you to do one of two things. We have all of our materials for sale in this hallway off to the side here. Up the stairs, somewhere my wife set up the table. It covers all of our nature videos. We have all different variety, not only what you saw here tonight and today, but also all the previous things I've talked about here at Advent Hope over the last 10 years. And we have all sorts of different angles on creation science and animal protection in all different uh, ways of looking at it. And so that's what our DVDs cover. And so if you're wanting to support what we do, that's how you can do so. 
We do not get paid a salary. We do not get paid by amazing facts. Everything we do is supported by sales of our materials. And so if you want to have this ministry go to new places and share it with others, that's the way you can do so. And we thank you very much for your support. Everything you see on that table goes to support our ministry. We also have a very few items of my dad. We're kind of away from all the supplies at this point, and so we don't have much, but we have a few items of my father's DVDs and various things like that, so you can take a look at that as well. But that's, uh, we don't have our full uh, complement with us at this point. For those of you who are not wanting to go to the sales yet, you are welcome to stay, and I will be happy to answer any questions you might have about anything we talked about today or the animal world in general. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give everybody just a minute to decide if they're heading out or staying here for questions. And then at that point, we will open it up for questions. We ask that those who are not going to stay for questions try to move outside or into the hallway so that we do not disrupt too much the question and answer time period in here. But I'm going to close with prayer as we end the Sabbath day and start a new week. Father in heaven, we've looked at your world today. We've looked at its inhabitants and we've looked a little bit at ourselves. And help us now as we start a new week and begin to witness to those around us, even if we are unaware of what we are saying, help us to really reflect your character and showcase to others the wonder of your creation in a way that perhaps they've never thought about or seen before. And help each day that goes by bring us to your perfect world soon to come when all of this will be restored back to its original perfection and we can see it all again the way you first designed it. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.